I guess it connected with so many people and like, I, I always presumed we would be kind of like a cult band. This is the story of a group of pals from Glasgow who formed a band and changed the face of British music. We were celebrating. There was something to celebrate, like, every day. A band who started off playing gigs in friends' bedrooms and soon found themselves performing at the Grammys and touring the world to millions. It's a story of risk, intuition and reinvention, told for the first time by the band themselves in exclusive new interviews with a little help from their friends, collaborators and those they've inspired. It just felt like a really exciting time. Like, where the hell is this going to go? And it was like, what is going on right now? Like, what, what, how are we going to, how are we going to get our foot in the door when there's, there's another, you know, seemingly this, there's this other beast. Yeah, I was wondering if you're going to bring that up. <laughs> I'm Rose Matafeo, comedian, writer, actor, and Franz Ferdinand mega fan. He had to show my love for the band after I was kicked off their official internet message board as a teenager, but all is forgiven. This is Words So Leisured, the story of Franz Ferdinand. Part three, you could have it so much better. It's late 2004, the year that Franz Ferdinand broke and went from art school party band to Mercury Prize winning phenomenon. Home for the band now is a hotel room, an airport lounge, or the stage itself. And for the most part, that's exactly how they wanted it. Guitarist Nick McCarthy. Yeah, we, we were well, pretty much celebrating all the time, really. Like, you know, four, four young guys flying around the world and um, playing concerts, meeting people. I mean, it was just, yeah, a total dream. I mean, it's like what, what, what everyone dreams of, probably. But the good times can be just as exhausting as when things aren't going your way. Offers were coming in from all over the world, and as bassist Bob Hardy remembers, Franz Ferdinand were not a band that liked to say no. I, I, we refused to see it or talk about it as work because it seemed like such an incredible opportunity. How many people possibly get to do this that we would just we would just say yes to everything? Like, well, yeah, of course we'll do that. It wasn't that long that we were sitting in Alex's kitchen, so it's like, well. Yeah, you know, if someone come along to us and said, do you want to do a, a breakfast session on some radio station in New York? Well, yeah. So we were saying, yes, we'd do everything. So yeah, we were, we were exhausted, but I don't think we really understood how tired we were. Band manager, Cern Canning. There was a period in, I guess, March, April of that year, 2004, where we knew what we were going into, but we had something like 25 shows in 30 days, and then things started to come in. And I think a historian might pick me up on this, but it was thing, for example, we got offered Morrissey's 45th birthday party in Manchester. He was doing a show and he invited the band to play. Luckily, we were available, but we were somewhere else. So we had to come back from Europe, do that show. Then I think we got offered the MTV Awards. So I think it ended up being 31 shows in 30 days. We ended up doing more than a show a day for a month. And it was bananas. But all of us were open-eyed, but people were genuinely shattered. And I think Paris probably fell a bit later than that, but it would have been the culmination of that. November 4th, 2004. Paris. The moment the band's relentless schedule reached breaking point at an arena venue called The Zenith. 
Yeah, I was wondering if you're going to bring that up. <laughs> I think we should talk about it, yeah. <laughs> um, the events of the, the Zenit in Paris are both uh, comic and tragic in equal parts. Drama Paul Thompson. Zenith was like a five-band bill. It was like, it was us, the Kills, who we were on tour with, uh, the Zootons, and and then opening was uh, the Killers, played like 20 minutes at the start. The gig, I don't know, didn't didn't go that well or something. And um, and after the gig, there was like a big punch up, you know, like, for, like uh, between us, between the band. And uh, I couldn't believe it. And it was over something very, very petty. I can't even remember. And the the whole dressing room was rocking because it, it was a porter cabin run backstage. And uh, like and in in France, like the they invite generally all the media and journalists sort of come backstage. So the basically the entire French media was outside the dressing room. It probably sounded very comical from the outside. Um, I heard that the porter cabin was actually shaking. <laughs> Just the sound of things smashing. And the record label had got Hedy Slaman from Dior to design us a gold disc that they wanted to present to us. Um, and so we, our trail manager came in and kind of, you know, like, was like, you have to go and get this disc. Our manager, so we were like, okay. <laughs> so we, we paused the fight, went out, got our gold disc, said, thank you very much. Went back in the porter cabin and, uh, Start thumping each other again. All fuming, you know, all that. And then we got these things like, merci. And then we back, went back in and <laughs> started, punching, started fighting again. Like Jarvis Cocker was waiting in the production office because we were going to be writing uh, some songs for the Harry Potter film with him and we were going to be the band. And so he was waiting for this meeting, but we were just fighting. And I wasn't really involved in the fighting, I have to say. I'm more of a, I'm not really that kind of guy. Um, so I, I stood, I popped out briefly into the production room, uh, production office, and Jarvis was sitting there. He's like, oh, hi, do you, are we going to work on some tunes? And I was like, yeah, mate, maybe. Um, and then I kind of stormed out with like a sort of kind of shirt all torn and all that and just what looked like about 100 people all like staring at me, all standing around this porter cabin. And then I got outside and I was, I was kind of sitting just like seething. And um, and then the like, the girl from the Zootons w- went past and she went, boss gig, by the way. And I was like, oh, thanks very much. And then, <laughs> you know, even while I'm in the middle of all this, like kind of everything's just normal on the outside. When you were as stressed out as we were at that time, when you'd been uh, touring without a break, uh, and your nerves are shattered. It was too much, and I guess the fight was probably triggered by something very trivial. But on top of everything, the whole thing exploded. Today, the Zenith fight feels more comedy than tragedy, but it was a serious test for the band. In fact, it very nearly ended things there and then. Just nine months on from releasing their debut album, Franz Ferdinand were on the verge of splitting up. Paul Thompson again. Yeah, and, and, and I was ready to just like go home at that point. You know, I was, I was quite upset. And then we, we, a couple of days later, we, me and Alex just went for a walk, kind of patched things up. But I, I think we called off like a couple of things and the, um, the label and management were just still, still pushing for us. 
I think it was to do a TV show in Germany, and we're like that. We're not doing this TV show. It's just like you know, we're, we've had enough. We're gonna, you know, we're seriously going to break up. And I don't think they believed us. Yeah, no, it was re- it was really serious. And then it took probably a few weeks of healing. I presume we pulled a few things out to reflect the realities that they were all burnt out, and and then got on with it. But it it, it was a major thing, you know. It, it, it sounds very dramatic, and it was dramatic, and it was kind of harrowing as well as amusing, heartbreaking as well as absurd. But we survived it. We got through. As they dusted themselves down and got back to touring, the band were also keen to get back into the studio to start work on their second album, Bob Hardy. It felt like, because we were going back-to-back tours where we, you know, we'd do a tour of the UK, do a tour of the States, come back, do a tour of Europe, go back to the UK and do a bigger tour of the UK with bigger venues, go to Japan, come back, do, go back to the States, do a do a tour of the states with bigger venues you know we we, we done like three tours of the states by this point with this record that i think we were feeling are we not milking this a bit should we not like you know this seems like mad we're, we're, what we're going back to the states where but then you know a manager would be explaining yeah but you know you've um you've sold a million records so like if you think about it you've only played to like forty thousand people so far and like you know like, it's just can we just like make some new music and so we would st- we started sort of in vain kind of like setting up rehearsal rooms inside venues um which yeah it was a nice idea but we were just absolutely wiped out i mean i was just like completely burnt out by this point drinking too much um yeah exhausted didn't really know and had no lost all kind of judgment of anything so i I don't know i don't know what if anything we wrote ended up on actually on a record i mean maybe i'm your villain maybe that was written in a in a venue somewhere when i would look back at the bands that i loved which had inspired me and i would see the rate at which they released albums you know i would look at the smith's back catalog you know they would do an album in 1984, then another one would come out in 1985, then later in 1985, another one would come out, then another one, you know, like, and the same with the Beatles, you know, like, uh, Rubber Soul would come out, and then, like, so eight months later, Revolver would come out, and it's like, like, why the fuck can't we do that? I want to do that as well. Well, the reason we couldn't do that was because every minute of the day we spent touring. Um, and while it was great to travel the world and get to go to all those places and play those gigs... I feel a little bit bitter about it because there was something really special with what we were and what we were doing. And that time of creativity was squandered. So I was intensely frustrated, intensely frustrated. I wanted to be back there and I wanted to be creating. And I wanted to get it out. And the, the reason I wanted to get it out was not so we could go back on the road again. It was just so we could do another one afterwards. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to write music and I wanted to record it and then write more. That was probably a, a mistake, I think, that we made. Uh, we, should have, we should have written more, I think. We should have written more. We should have taken more time uh, to record. 
In February 2005, the band did take time to record. At Alex's home just south of Glasgow, they started to make album number two. You could have it so much better. Sessions were juggled with collecting Brit Awards, more shows and interviews, and opening the Grammys with a mashup performed alongside the Black Eyed Peas, Gwen Stefani, and Maroon 5. It sounds like a bizarre night, and is one that Paul Thompson remembers fondly. Sort of. Um, I can remember being booking a, like a day room like in a hotel next to the Staples Centre, ironing our clothes and listening to like comedy albums, and that was that was like literally my favourite part of the day. The rest of it, the rest of it was pretty hellish. And yeah, we did the red carpet, and there was like I think James Brown was there, and like Hulk Hogan, Jerry Lee Lewis, and it was like like Madame Tussauds on acid, and and um, at the point where we got up to the the banks of photographers, they all like you could tell that loads of them didn't know who we were, and somebody had to hold up a sign. And they're all like, oh, "Okay, Franz Ferdinand." And, the backstage area was dry as well, so obviously at this point we were just like you know, probably like functioning alcoholics, and just, so we had, yeah we had to smuggle in like whiskey and everything and drink them out of water bottles and played like a a verse and a chorus from Take Me Out, then sat in the audience. Kanye did Jesus Walks with these these mum on stage and stuff. I can remember that. Don't remember much else. Went to a ho- went to a party. The Roosevelt Hotel afterwards, met Ricky Martin, had a panic attack, went home, <laughs> went back to my hotel. Back home in Glasgow, their friends who had witnessed their rapid rise from the very beginning watched on with pride and amusement. Friends like Scott Patterson from the band Sons and Daughters. Someone we know is at the Grammys? That's like, you know, who... But nowadays, it's like your Ariana Grande's and your, you know, in those days it would have been I don't know, like Britney Spears and things like that, you know. So it was, it was wild and just like so happy for them because, like I said, they were so down to earth and weren't really letting it affect them. It was just kind of hilarious. To go from the Chateau to like playing a stage with the Black Eyed Peas and Maroon 5 in the space of, what, two years probably? Um, yeah, crazy. You Could Have It So Much Better went straight to number one in September 2005, which only made everything bigger. The parties, the attention, and definitely the shows. I do remember Franz headlining Reading Festivals, and as they were going up to the stage, Nick and I were chatting, and I said, oh, are you feeling nervous? And he said, no, it's fine. And, and I think there were about 50,000 people in front of the stage. And um, he said, I was far more nervous when you came to our first rehearsal. The record featured the singles Do You Want To, The Fallen, Walk Away and Eleanor Put Your Boots On, as well as fan favourite Outsiders, which became the band's closing song in their live set. They toured the record hard, of course, this time in arenas. And then, finally, the band were ready to take their first proper break. Let us make the most of this rare downtime with a short interlude about an element of the band that has always been as potent as the music itself. 
their all-important aesthetic, from the way they dress to how they're determined to make every show feel like a special event. This is Brandon Flowers. I am the singer for The Killers from Las Vegas, Nevada. I still distinctly remember this, an image of them that, that was in a magazine. And it was just like, it was kind of another blow, you know, because, because you already had the strokes and they looked fantastic and they sounded fantastic. And now here was this other group, uh, you know, from, from this, you know, from this, this place that we revered from Great Britain. And, um, and they were getting compared to Blondie and Roxy Music and the Talking Heads. And it was like, what is going on right now? Like, wait, what? How are we gonna? How are we gonna get our foot in the door when there's there's another? You know, seemingly this there's this other beast. And I'd heard about Take Me Out, but I still hadn't heard it. And so I just remember I was jealous uh, before I had even heard <laughs> that song because of the way that you know, just because uh, of what it was written about them and the way they looked. Former editor of Enemy Magazine, Connor McNicholas. They'd really crafted the way that they appeared rather than just kind of, you know, turning up with whatever they'd grabbed off the um, uh, the bedroom floor. Um, Fran set the template really for, for what was expected of a band. So that level of intelligence, the craft that goes into the live shows, not being embarrassed about uh, putting together um, a look because they understood that, you know, this was this was showmanship. You know, there was a showbiz aspect to it. Our permission came from being from Las Vegas, you know that that was that was the the, the you know the, the 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 way that we were able to put on the shows that we eventually were able to put on, you know it, it sort of we we looked to that place where we were from, and and I think they they were coming you know again from another angle, but they were putting on great shows and there was a sense of occasion, and and that was something that had been missing in rock and roll, I felt like for a long time. I wasn't feeling that in what was happening in music at the time. I guess I'm not, you know, it's no secret for for everyone. And you know, there's, it's without trashing what, you know, what was going on before them, there just had been a a sort of a a desert, uh, you know. (laughs) That's the other thing that felt revolutionary, not just the sound, not just the songwriting, but everything like the way the band would perform. And these were the things that I talked about with Bob. And part of it was rebellion, uh, and part of it was novel ideas. But like things like like this idea of meeting the eye of the audience, you know, like like the opposite of the shoegaze thing. Like it was like kind of no, I'm always going to engage directly with the audience. Kind of like like almost like like you would do with a wild dog or a bear or something like that. Like you'd stare them in the eye till they either ate you or they fucked off. We wanted artwork, the artwork to be good, obviously. We were really into the Russian constructivist kind of vibe. for, And so we just started heavily borrowing from that. And then also we wanted to make, or you know, back originally when we first started talking about a band, we wanted to make gigs seem like a special occasion. So we would try and dress smartly or dress like, you know, if you're going for a night, like a special night out. You know, we were all kind of into that, really. Yeah, we, I mean, we all have impeccable taste. I couldn't agree more. But now, back to the music.
The band had more than earned their time off, as they reflected on all they'd achieved in such a short period of time. By late 2007, they were ready to think about their third album and a new way of working. And what could be more different than an album made with an out-and-out pop producer? Alex Capranis. I wanted to really collaborate with somebody that felt unexpected, that would challenge us in a way that we weren't uh, used to. And uh, I was aware of what Brian Higgins was doing with Xenomania. Xenomania is Higgins's production group, who by this point had written and produced a raft of hits for Girls Aloud, S Club 7, Kylie Minogue and Cher. And so we met up with Brian and he was an odd character, but he was... It felt kind of cool, and we we worked on uh, Know You Girls together, and I liked his approach. I'd always thought of songs in quite a modular way, of just being sections that you can like pull apart and sort of stick together. You know, I, I talked about darts, darts of pleasure, and like like bringing in two completely unconnected sections and just banging them together to make something new. And that's something that I'd seen Brian doing in Xenomania, uh, like some of those girls aloud songs. The different sections are totally unrelated to each other musically. And when we talked, it was really exciting and like creatively, I, I felt a connection with them, and I felt that there was something good there. Uh, so we we went to a, a studio in London. We worked on Know Your Girls, and yeah, he really got it, and it was really fun. Then we went to his place. Now, Brian had a house that used to belong to Alice Liddle. Uh, Alice Liddle, her parents were friends in the 19th century with, what's his name, Charles Dodson, the Lewis Carroll. So Alice Liddle was... Alice in Wonderland, and that's where Brian's house is. It's his back garden is Wonderland essentially, and it was kind of fascinating to see how how he was working. Like he had somebody in one room who was purely writing top lines, you know, like the melody at the top of a song. Somebody working purely on beats, but then it was kind of a little bit absurd. There were a couple of girls that would come down from London every day to tell the lyricists the latest street slang so they could put it into songs and sort of thing. Nick McCarthy again. And and he made you feel, he made everyone feel very, very um, important. You know, he was, I had a way with people and you just thought, wow, he really takes me seriously and really wants, you know, really wants to... Um, but then he got, then it got really weird because then he started. Um, he, he kept on talking about money. Then you know, and um, I don't know. We weren't used to that at all. I, I loved his creative processes, but he was driven more by commercial success than by just the pure creation of art, which I think is what we've always been driven by. And so while our processes were were similar, uh, they ultimately had different goals. And I'm not criticizing him for those goals, it's just different. But I think he was getting a bit frustrated with us as well. Uh, yeah, I remember I remember being with Nick, wandering around the graveyard in the, uh, the village where Brian lives and uh, uh, just talking about it, it's kind of like, eh, this isn't really working, is it? So, um, so we fucked off back to Glasgow. <laughs> and then we like when well, then we went exactly the opposite way. <laughs> Fucking off back to Glasgow, Franz Ferdinand returned to their roots. 
The chateau was long gone, but the city still had plenty of disused buildings waiting to become their new home. The one they settled on was the particularly grand Govan Town Hall, a vast building from the turn of the century that came with its own theatre. I mean, that was another place uh, we found. Govan Town Hall was just um, a- an empty town hall, and it was this huge, like, kind of church space um, with a, no, it was a theatre, an old theatre um, was in there as well. I mean, it was a total dream, you know, just like, just, we could we could go on stage and um, we could uh, put, put amps on stage, just mess around in this massive theatre. We had this bad, and it was just really cheap, you know, it was like really, it was insane. I was, we were playing like, I think we were playing like 200 quid for, the, for, the, for a month or something, you know, and it was a, a whole, a whole theatre for us. <laughs> First, it became their rehearsal space, and then their recording studio. And on production duties was Dan Carey. It was a very big deal to me. I was a massive fan, and uh, so really excited at the prospect and quite nervous to meet them and went and had this great chat. Dan was exactly the opposite of Brian. What happened was we were flipped from kind of going to from this ultimately super pop approach to the total opposite, which was a big sprawling experimentation and as loose as possibly could be. We all decamped to the, the old town hall in Govan and we experimented. Govan Hall almost became a fifth member of the band, with Franz recording in its grand hall, the toilets, underneath the stage and in old carpeted offices, experimenting in every corner of the building to see what sounds it had to offer. At one point, Dan Carey climbed 50 feet into the rafters to swing a microphone from the ceiling to create a Doppler effect on guitar takes. Just kind of any crazy idea that you could have sonically that uh, you think, man, what would happen if we did that? And just literally trying it out. But the most frequently used technique was one inspired by an American soul legend. Dan Carey again. So I've recently been shown these James Brown recordings of like Sex Machine, but like the actual take when they get that song what they did is just played the song over and over again for about an hour and a half and then you know about halfway in there's one thing and just straight when you hear it just straight away then you, ding, 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 you know that's the one but they it was the repetition that kind of got them into the, so I thought it'd be an interesting thing to try that and so we kind of did this thing where when we did Ulysses it was one of the first ones we did we set the band up that was under the stage but decided to play the verse for <laughs> Like, you know, 20 minutes, a half an hour. And um, and then when everyone kind of felt that, that the groove had been got for that, we would just go on to the, like, the, the bridge. And then when that for another half hour, when that was got, we'd go on to the chorus. And then, you know, get, we sort of mapped out the song and just did each. So the, the full take of Ulysses is about two hours long. And I remember I hadn't, I thought, it was, I mean, it was, it was great, but I hadn't really considered... Um, so Paul's hand was just bleeding afterwards because just playing the same thing, really hot. Drumsticks had kind of worn through one of his fingers. I mean, after a while, you just you just sort of transcend a little bit. You're not really sort of aware of it. I quite enjoyed it. I quite like um, music has sort of transcendental properties and you can kind of lose yourself a little bit. And I mean, that's, I mean, that's what I like about being on stage. It's just the absolute peace that you have. So being able to sort of, get that get into that state in the studio was um you know i was i was all for it 
This is how a majority of Tonight, Franz Ferdinand, was recorded, with the band repeatedly playing sections of songs in search of a magic bar or two. If there was a downside to this approach, it was in how long the album took to make. Nick McCarthy again. I mean, I really loved that. It's really, really good. But in terms of um, wanting to record um, a, a record a year, that was when we stopped doing a record a year. That's because uh, we it took ages doing that doing that record. Bob Hardy. Yeah, I had no idea what was going on most of the time. To be honest, um, it was there was we were kind of writing simultaneously in the room and recording. It was permanently night time. Um, yeah, it was. And it just I honestly have no idea how long it lasted. Like I had that session, I, I don't know how long we were in government for. But that's the story behind the scenes. The public perception of the band was kind of skewed because of what had happened. Because it had gotten to the public that we were uh, working with Xenomania because Brian wanted to tell everybody. Like we didn't want to tell anybody, but like you know, we're usually quite private like I, I i don't like to tell the world what's going on during the creative process i prefer to kind of like arrive with it finished and kind of go there you go that's it because you don't sit down and totally plan what an album's going to be you allow it the ideas to develop uh, it's, it's like sketchbook keeping when you're an artist you, you you develop your ideas and the ideas that you have at the beginning are not necessarily the ideas that come into the world at the end so i think it's always best to keep it so but Brian had leaked that we were working with Xenomania, so the the perception amongst the public and journalists in particular was that we were going to make this pop record, and tonight is probably the least poppy record that we made. Uh, I guess Know You Girls is kind of like a poppy melody, but like the, 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 the sound of the record is something completely different, and so people were expecting to hear this record that sounded like Girls Aloud, and then and then tonight appeared, and it's nothing like that at all. And so some people wrote about it as if it was this poppy record. And so like, oh yeah, Franz Ferdinand have gone pop. It's like, no, it's not poppy at all. And then others were kind of saying, we were expecting a poppy record and you gave us this. It's like, oh, just fucking just see it for what it is. Tonight, Franz Ferdinand was released on the 26th of January 2009, charting at number two in the UK, despite the press confusion about how the album might sound. Today, it's considered one of the band's most sonically diverse records, thanks to the experiments at Govan Town Hall. And you can probably guess exactly what happened next. The band took to the road and extensively toured the world. Well, yeah, the Tonight Tour was most of 2009. And then there was a little bit at the beginning of 2010. We went down to Australia and then South America. And yeah, and then pretty much didn't really speak to Alex or maybe Nick for maybe a year. The gruelling schedule had taken its toll once again, especially on the relationship between Bob Hardy and Alex Kapranis. At the end of 2010, the band regrouped to play two shows for their friends Bal and Sebastian at their festival, the Bowley Weekender. But there was no mention of what next, only an unspoken sense that these might be the last two shows the band would ever play. 
there weren't any plans after after the bowling weekend to then meet up and start working on music. You know, it was kind of like, I'll see you later then, you know. Coming up, in the final part of Words So Leisured, the story of Franz Ferdinand. I didn't know whether we were going to work out how to stop the band or whether we were going to work out our differences and continue the band. Estranged bandmates Bob Hardy and Alex Capranas meet on neutral ground to decide the fate of Franz Ferdinand. If there was a HR department in Franz Ferdinand, you know, a lot of issues would have been resolved, um, but there isn't. I remember just saying to her, oh, come on, right, we just, need to, we just need to talk about this. And the band reinvents itself as two members exit and three enter. And then just kind of at one point, Alex was just like, so, like, would an international tour be something, like, of interest to you? And I was just like, yeah, like, <laughs> obviously. It re-energises, I think. This feels like a great band, a different band. I'm Rose Matafeo, and this has been part three of Words So Leisured, the story of Franz Ferdinand. The series producers are Stuart Stubbs and Greg Cochran. This has been a new allotment production.